Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Jay Shetty. Jay was a former monk, but today he serves as a coach, helping people identify and live out their purpose. He hosts a podcast on the subject called On Purpose, where he's interviewed an extraordinary range of guests, from Rob Lowe to Patrice Cullors, Glennon Doyle, Ray Dalio, and Kobe Bryant. This month, Jay released his book, Think Like a Monk. We talk about compassion for self, and compassion for others, the value of pain, and why many of us have never really spent time by ourselves and with ourselves, and what can happen when we do. Ultimately, Jay's work is about equipping people with lessons and tools so we can transform emotional states and create the relationships we're yearning for. I think and hope you'll find much of what he shares today to be clarifying. What I mean by compassion is don't judge where you're at, just know there's a step above. And so that's what it really means to be compassionate to yourself is don't judge the step you're on. Don't make yourself feel guilty for the step you're on, but know that there is a step above. And, and I think if we live our lives like that, it's like when you're climbing a ladder, you don't go, oh, I'm stuck on the second step. There's 10 steps. You go, okay, I'm on the second one. I'm going to keep going. And I know there's a higher step. Let's get to my chat with Jay Shetty. How are you? Where are you? I think it's funny, the more that I'm around successful people or the more that I endeavor to do in the world, I really find this recurrent theme all the time that people feel like, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm doing this wrong or I'm not who people think I'm like, there seems to be a delta between how people are perceived and how they feel about themselves. How do you help people close that gap? Yeah, I think it's really normal because I don't think anyone's ever really been encouraged to be themselves since going to school. And so you were always trained to be someone else. There's a quote that I love to explain because I think it really encompasses everything. And I might have shared it with you before, but it's a quote by Charles Horton Cooley. He said this in the 1800s. And, and he said, the challenge today is I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. And, and I love sharing it because it blows my mind every time, but it's that feeling of we live in a perception of ourselves. So if I think you think I'm smart, then I feel smart. And if I think you think I'm not, then I'm not. I think the best way you start closing that gap is you start almost labeling and giving names to the different roles you play in your life. And it's almost like becoming really aware of the different roles, the different masks, the different disguises you have to wear in the different areas of your life and starting to almost uncloak them slowly and unlearn them and start to recognize the parts you want to keep and the parts you don't. One of the values exercises that I like to encourage people to do is 
make a list of everything they think they currently are, ask themselves where that came from, whether it came from internal or extrinsic motivators, and then finally decide if they still want to keep it or not. And I think that awareness exercise usually is a good place to start. Yeah. You start the book with that quote. It's a very provocative quote because I think a lot of us don't go about our day thinking that they're living in a perception or of who they possibly might be based on who somebody might think they are. And I think it really got me thinking that I spent so much of the early part of my life solely acting that dynamic out. And of course it was unconscious, but who does this person think I am? Who do they want me to be? And then I will try to quickly assess that and then mold myself into that model of a person. And I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. I, I know that I knew that it felt completely out of integrity and that I felt out of integrity a lot of the time, especially in a situation where I felt like I was scrambling to embody a perception. And then when I was about 40, around the time I turned 40, I was like, fuck this, this is exhausting. Like I, I have to figure out who I am and what I want and then everything else should follow. But it took me a lot of bumps and scrapes. And it seems like you, in your path, you got there very early at a very young age. And obviously through reading your book and hearing about your experience in the monastery and what that did, how that built your internal idea of who you are. I just wonder if you have any kind of shortcuts you can share for how people can get to the truth of who they are more quickly. I think shortcuts is almost, and, and I appreciate what we're trying to do when we say that word, but I almost feel like shortcuts uh, don't exist mm -hmm. in, in understanding yourself. And I almost don't want to, I don't want to mislead anyone by encouraging exi the existence of shortcuts. Because Maybe I, shortcut is the wrong word, but I felt that you were very much on one path, which you articulate in, in the book. Your parents had all these expectations of you. You're supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer, a successful businessman. You had this feeling, this strong feeling in your 20s, like there's something else, this isn't for me. And you were toggling back and forth between these worlds of sort of meditation and self-exploration and the kind of real world where we're living in this world of all these perceptions. I think most of us take this very circuitous route to find out the essence of who we are. And you just got right to the chase. Right. So how did you do that? I, I, yeah, that's a great question. I, I genuinely believe it's meeting people who live like that. And I think that's the hardest part about it is that you're not exposed as a young person to many people who live their most authentic, truest, maskless life. Mm -hmm. And so we end up mirroring what we see and I was really fortunate and I still owe it to the fact that it wasn't my doing. I was totally wrapped up in trying to project who I thought I should be and what I believed I should become instead of becoming my true self. But when you see someone who is completely themselves, it's almost like a mirror reflection and you, go, you, you lose all sense of that. So I think one of the biggest reasons why I wrote the book and why I called it Think Like a Monk is it's almost like who's the monk in your life? It doesn't even have to be a monk. But it's like, who's that person in your life that almost authentically mirrors back to you that reflection and that realization that they've found themselves and how you can do that too? And I really do believe that it's people. The, the other side of it really- Oprah, is, Oprah is that person. There you go, there you go. Well, yeah, it's, it's, and, and that's what I mean, that because rarely do people get to meet these people face to face and interact with them, we almost don't have faith that it even exists. And so there's this cynicism inside everyone around, well, isn't everyone just trying to do their best or just trying to get by? But the truth is that there are people out there, some of them are well-known like Oprah and some of them are not well-known like this monk, but there are people out there who can show us glimpses into what it means to truly understand yourself. But if we're talking about shortcuts or how do we start that process, I genuinely believe that the way we start that process or the way we fast track that process is getting really clear about what we're pursuing in life right now, what our dreams are, what our goals are, and genuinely checking in with ourselves and just saying, is this my dream? Is this my goal? Is this how I want to be known and 
understood by myself. And I think that's the key part about it. We always ask people like, oh, what are the three words that your friends would use to describe you? And my question is, forget what your friends would say three words. What are the three words you'd use to describe yourself? And I think the more you start understanding how you feel about yourself, that's at the root of getting out of that earlier on. Do you think that person, that monk-like figure that passes through all of our lives, hopefully, if we're lucky at one point or another, do you think that we're seeing something in them that's reflecting something in terms of our potential internally? Or are they somehow creating a circumstance whereby they are freeing you. I don't know if it's like they're helping you eliminate shame or helping you feel like a possibility of who you might be. Do you think that they're creating something external or you're seeing something internal in them that's reflecting back to you? Yeah, wow, these are beautiful. I'd say that the biggest thing that's happening is the freedom of being able to let go of all your designations, statuses, titles, roles in how you describe yourself. So most of us in the external realm would describe ourselves by what we do. And the monk-like figure would describe themselves by who they are and what they stand for. And so all of a sudden, it's not about what you do or where you live or where you grew up from. It's who you are and what you stand for and what example you're setting for society or the people around you. And so I very much think it's that internal freedom to let go of all of these titles because it's almost like that person doesn't care. I I often talk about how I visit the monastery. I go back to India every year for about two to three weeks, a year since I've left. And my wife comes with me now as well. And, And when I'm there, what I love about it is they don't, no one cares about what I do or what I practice on a daily basis. It's all about who you are and, and where you can go from there. And I think that almost, it almost just allows you to let go of your own pressure about that as well. I think we all feel a certain pressure when we're in certain circles to be a certain way. And when you meet someone who kind of breaks all the rules of that, you feel like you can just shed all of that baggage as well. Does that resonate? Does that connect? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's what it is. It's that feeling of, and, and by the way, there are people who make you feel like you're wonderful to be around. I know we've only met once and I'm speaking to you now as well, but I, I don't feel, there are a few people that we know in common that I don't feel pressure being around them because of what they've accomplished in the world, because they're so happy with who they are that they're just disarming. And I think, I, I definitely think you have that. And I, I love people like that. I'm almost more attracted to people like that who have accomplished a lot, who have achieved a lot, but are so disarming because they're not holding on to that as their identity. They know that they have more than that as well. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb com/host What are the channels that an everyday person can use to find that freedom? Because I mean, you say a lot in the book, like I'm not suggesting that you go become a monk and go <laughs> meditate for three years in a row. Yeah. And I know that it's a lot about the mind and how we that we do have control over the way that we think about things and how we relate to the world, but. Do you think that meditation really is a tool to start to take off those layers to get closer? How do you use, how did you use meditation, I guess is my question, in the monastery and how do you use it now? Yeah, so that's great. Let's dive into the specifics on how meditation can be used. So if you 
First of all, I'd like to redefine meditation a little bit in the sense that I think there are so many connotations around it. And for me, my favorite definition that I've come across through the teachings of meditation is basically time by yourself or a meeting with yourself. And that's the best definition I've heard and read out there and studied out there because I feel like it can be so complicating to think of, it is it a tool? What do I have to do? And, and the way I think of it is we have meetings every day. We have appointments every day. We have things on our schedule every day. What if we could have a meeting with ourselves? And if you think about falling in love with someone or spending time with someone, the more time you spend with them, the more you know whether they're right for you or what you like about them or what you don't like about them. And the majority of us have never spent time by ourselves with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not been encouraged. Loneliness has always been seen as a weakness. We were talking about school earlier. If you were the kid at school who wasn't talkative or didn't have a lot of friends, you were considered the loner. Or if you didn't have a lot of kids at your birthday party, you were unpopular. And if you're 35 and single, it's like, oh no, why are you not with someone? You know, we've created this uh, negative view towards loneliness. And in the English dictionary, there are two words for loneliness. There's being alone and then there's solitude. And we rarely talk about solitude. And Paul Tillich and other writers have talked about how solitude is the strength of being alone. So I believe the first thing, even before meditation, is distancing ourselves for a bit of time. And that could be an hour a week. It could be 10 minutes a week. But it's finding a bit of space and stillness and solitude from which you can start to make your mind up about it stuff. So if you're always surrounded by noise, that noise becomes your voice. And now you sound like just who you're around as opposed to you actually getting some space and saying, what do I really believe about that? What do I think about that? So I do think that state is first important. How meditation is used, and this was one of my favorite forms of meditation that I learned, it's called a question meditation. So a lot of the times when we ask questions to the world or to the universe or even people around us, they're more like demands or they're not questions, they're almost commands. They're like, why is this happening to me? Or what's going wrong? Or why does this always go wrong for me? And that's not really a question. It's like a complaint, even though it sounds like a question. But a question meditation is where you actually have a really sincere request. And a question could be as simple as, who am I? Is this truly me? Do I really want this? And when you ask yourself that question, you just sit with it, not demanding an answer or not pushing for an answer in the next five minutes. And you allow the whole day to become your classroom. And you just allow every person to become your teacher, but you're sitting with that question. You're almost approaching every interaction with that question. Because guess what? I'll meet, I'll meet you today and you're a successful entrepreneur. And I'll think, well, maybe I need to be a successful entrepreneur. But if I've asked myself that question in the morning and I just remind myself, is that really me? Do I really want to be that? And the internal answer will come and say, no, I don't think that is me. Let's move on. And so that question meditation, I believe, has been a really powerful way of getting to know myself. And just allowing a question to sit for a day, a week, whatever it may be. That's so beautiful. Do you reiterate the question to yourself? Yeah. So if I was sitting down for about, let's say I had five minutes to meditate, I would first allow myself to think of what's the most important question I think I need to ask myself. And anyone who struggles with this, it's really useful to use questions that other people have used before. So you don't have to come up with your own question. And I give examples in the book. And with that question... You want to ask it, try and ask it three times, but the goal is to ask it more sincerely each time. And it's asking it as if you were asking a friend. I have a friend right now who is going through a very difficult time where there's been some trauma that's been unearthed. And I wanted to ask you, it's very difficult for her to go into meditation at this time because her baseline isn't what it was two months ago, or it wouldn't be what my baseline is today, where I could, or, or she could say, what is my question today? She's in the midst of processing this trauma. And I really wanted to ask you what the monk mentality is around processing trauma. If there's a belief around a larger picture, why the trauma has occurred, and then more tactically, how does a monk start to pull these threads of trauma out of the body to get back to the baseline where you can then start to get closer to the purpose. Yeah, I love that you spoke about that. And 
I'm a big believer in that too, that you can't just throw meditation or any of these tools like an antidote to every issue in life straight away. And almost sometimes it can do a disservice because someone's not ready or not in a space where they can receive it and accept it. So the understanding of why it exists from a greater perspective, of course, we can look at everything from past and past lives through to just this life and early stages. And so we realize that all of our desires, all of our pursuits, all of our needs for love, for understanding come from how we were well-treated or sometimes the lack of treatment that we received from our parents. So that's the greater explanation that we can see for it, that there have been certain seeds and weeds in our earlier lifetime, certain seeds that our parents planted that grew into beautiful trees in our life and fruits, and then certain weeds that just stuck around. And now they've created this uncertainty and, and inconvenience and pain for us. And understanding that root of it really helps because you stop blaming it on yourself. You stop blaming on your circumstances. You even stop blaming on your parents, but you just come to an understanding that I have been through something because half the time when we feel pain and trauma and it eats us alive is when we don't really get where it comes from. And so as soon as you start to understand that, actually, let me be more compassionate to myself. And that's the beginning of the tactical step of let me understand that everyone in the world was not given a perfect beginning, uh, including me. And for that reason, instead of having judgment of others, I can actually do the opposite, which is being compassionate to myself. So those are usually the two things people end up in the two uh, challenges. We can either go and use that past life or earlier life trauma to be judging or bitter towards the people that did it, or we can use that same energy to be compassionate to ourselves. So that's the first step. So if you find yourself in judgment or bitterness towards someone, reflect that back and turn that into compassion for yourself. And what does it mean to be compassionate to yourself? It means to not devalue your pain. I think for a lot of people, we hear things like, oh yeah, but did you know there's people dying over there? Like, oh, did you know that you know, so-and-so's got it worse. We, we don't want to devalue our own pain and we don't want to belittle our pain and we don't want to devalue or belittle anyone else's pain either. We want to realize our pain is our pain and begin that process of compassion. So that's what it means to be compassionate to yourself. The next step is when you are ready to revisit the root and see where it was planted. Where was that thought planted which misled us. It's almost like that movie Inception and you see how an idea planted so deeply in someone's mind can completely off-road them that it shows you how an idea planted so deeply earlier on grows into this virus. And so we have to go and pinpoint where was that? And that may require coaching. It may require therapy. It may require a conversation with a loved one or a friend, but allowing yourself in a comfortable, sacred, safe space to revisit that is really important. And so that would be the next tactical step in that sense. And then, and then the third step after revisiting it may mean to shift our perception around that event. That can come in the form of deep reflection. It can come in the form of visualization. So I've worked with a lot of people where they would re-visualize a really painful circumstance and they would change their perception of it. And what I mean by that is you can't change what happened and you can't change your memory of it, but you can change how you experience it and now change in the world. So the best example and you brought up Oprah was when Oprah famously interviewed someone who forgave the murder of their son, which, you know, that's like insane amounts of trauma. Like I can't even begin to imagine I'm not a father. So I didn't even know what that feels like. And that person realized they never wanted anyone to feel that way again. And they didn't want the mother of the murderer to feel that way that she felt. And she changed her perception. And now her and that boy or man travel around the country speaking about why kids shouldn't be violent and why they shouldn't be aggressive to each, towards each other. Now, I'm not saying that everyone can reach that stage, but what I am saying is that openness around how can I reframe my experience to turn into service, to turn into giving back. And that's the monk mentality at the end of how do I turn my pain into compassion? Mm -hmm. How do I turn my pain into service of others? Because actually when I heal the pain in others' lives, 
things change. I don't know if you read the story of Sindhu Thai Satpal in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Sindhu Thai, I mean, for those who read the book, her, her story is just full of pain and trauma. Can we just for the audience? Just... Yeah, of course. So she's in India. She's pregnant, married, abused by her husband, thrown out while she's pregnant to the point that her husband tries to kick her while she's on the ground. She's protected by a cow on the streets of India. Her husband can't get through to her. She then give, gives birth on the street, cuts off the umbilical cord with a stone, like with a rock, literally. And then she sees the suffering on the streets. She sees orphans. She sees other children suffering without food. And she starts a shelter and a home and a charity where she has hundreds of kids now that she takes care of and is is a mother to. And and you just think, like, how does someone... And by the way, I've just given the worst, the quickest, most underestimated version of her story, but for the benefit of this conversation. And to me, that's a perfect example of the monk mentality because she she first had compassion for herself, then she had compassion for others, and then she turned it into a service. How do you define, or how would I think there's, I would say that victim consciousness and compassion for oneself live in the same neighborhood. Yeah. So how do you transmute this feeling of victimhood that's like, this happened to me, I'm so upset about it, which I think that victim consciousness is the greatest trick of the devil because you never end up looking at your own side of the street, but it lives in the same area. Do you know what I mean? You're so right. You're so right. You, so how, right. How, do we, how do we stay aware of what has happened to us and be truthful about what has happened to us, but wrap it in and take it into the side of compassion for, one, for oneself and let go of the victim piece, which keeps us so separate from being accountable for our part in whatever took place. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. You're spot on. Like, it's so right what you said. There's such a fine line between victimhood and compassion. And so in the Vedas, it talks about the modes. And so the modes are ignorance, passion, and goodness. And it said that every activity, every habit, every thought lives in one of these categories. So you have ignorance, passion, and goodness. The Sanskrit words are tamas, rajas, and sattva. So tamas is ignorance, rajas is passion, and sattva is goodness. And it said that every thought, every action lives in one of these. So what you just described, victimhood, sits in the mode of ignorance. It's all-encompassing. It's all about you. It drags you down. It doesn't really do any good. It doesn't push you forward. The mode of passion, which is slightly better than ignorance, is where you have the feeling that, okay, this happened to me, but I've got to get out of it. I've got to show those people that I can get out of it. I'm going to prove them wrong and I'm going to push out of it, which is often that motivation of I'll show them that I, I did it or I'll, I'll prove that I'm not like this, etc. And then the mode of goodness, that's where we get to that stage of, well, okay, I've been through this. I understand it. How do I now serve through it? How do I now make a difference to make sure this doesn't happen to someone again or that other people are educated and protected from what happened to me? So what it really is, it's going from being completely obsessed about it to becoming an observer of it almost. And what I mean by an observer of it is now you're looking at your own life almost as an observer or witness to something that happened to someone And now you're able to see it as something that affects more people than just yourself. And that expansion into service and compassion for others allows you to be truly compassionate for yourself because you're actually healing the pain. The pain is coming from the fact that you think this thing is so wrong and is so bad for you. And now that you're solving in the world, that's really building that compassion. So sometimes you have to go through the ignorance to passion to goodness. Like it's almost like a ladder, like the first Sorry? It's a process. It's a process. Yeah. So you may go through that. And what I mean by compassion is don't judge where you're at. Just know there's a step above. And so that's what it really means to be compassionate to yourself is don't judge the step you're on. Don't make yourself feel guilty for the step you're on, but know that there is a step above. And, and I think if we live our lives like that, it's like when you're climbing a ladder, you don't go, oh, I'm stuck on the second step. There's 10 steps. You go, okay, I'm on the second one. I've got to keep going. And I know there's a higher step. 
And, and I think as long as, if you're in victim mentality, as long as you realize there is another side, then you may just need to allow yourself to rant and vent and feel that for a moment, but knowing that there's more. In the book, you talk a lot about the oneness that being in this consciousness, like it connects you to the idea that there is, there is oneness. We're living in a time of incredible bifurcation, discord, where people's beliefs seem to be so fundamentally opposed that there's no way to puncture the other side, even with the idea of compassion or open-mindedness or anything. What does a monk think about where we are? (laughs) (laughs) I'd say the monks are not as surprised as we may think they are. When I've spoken to monks, obviously I'm not a monk anymore, but but when I speak to my monk teachers or guides or advisors, they're not surprised because they can see that we're living in an age which is actually defined as the age of quarrel and hypocrisy. And so defined by who? It's defined in the text, so the Vedas, the the text, the, the spiritual ancient literatures, the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas would actually define the age we live in as those two words. And it's actually stated in the text that this is the age of quarrel and hypocrisy. The Sanskrit term for it is Kali Yuga. Yuga means age and Kali is almost like darkness. And so there is almost a philosophical understanding around why it is that way. So the text would go on to suggest that we're already at a time when there is natural struggle and therefore for humanity to rise requires more effort, more challenge and more growth and more internal work. One of the ways that monks would definitely think about it is we're constantly living in a world where we're trying to be, and that obviously comes from a sense of ego. Even if there is truth in what you're fighting for, if the place you're fighting for is from is ego, that means I think I'm right. Now, if I think I'm right, that means you're wrong. And the challenge we don't realize with that mentality is that if it means that someone else is wrong, that means their ego is also going to want to be right one day, which means now I have to be wrong one day. And that cycle continues the cycle of quarrel and hypocrisy. The only way to subdue it, or to not even subdue, that's the wrong word, the only way to truly break through it is if we recognize that we genuinely have to start thinking like a team. And we have to genuinely start realizing that this is our planet. This is our home. This is our country. This is our organization. And the day we want to win, we have to realize other people will have to lose. And if I win and you lose, we both lose. And if you win and I lose, we both lose. The only way is to either win together or lose together. And as soon as you want to be right or the winner, you're saying someone has to be wrong and the loser. And that's where we lose everything. So the monk perspective and understanding would would say to go beyond just the body, go beyond the mind and recognize this inherent sameness and equal vision that exists within all of us and recognize that we're so much more than what we're even fighting for. I think a lot of boundaries have been drawn, more and more boundaries are drawn in people every day. And, and actually it's the sameness and the unity which is being missed, which is actually what brings us all together. I know that doesn't solve or create world peace in and of itself as an idea. I get that the world's more complicated than that. But I do believe that. It does. Sorry? said so it sort of does. When you were talking, I was just thinking to myself, gosh, we have all of these... I don't know if they're all of these systems, all of these binary hierarchies in our culture that reinforce exactly the opposite of what you're saying. For example, we all love sports. Sports is about winning and losing. We have class systems. So we're walking through the world every day, identifying, you know, in a meaningful way or even for pleasure, watching a basketball game in a way that reinforces this idea of winning and losing and separateness and that kind of binary way of thinking about things. Are there any things that we engage in that you can think of that create that consciousness of oneness or could there be? Like, what are things that we can do? 
to cultivate that in a modern era. Yeah, you're right. The, the reason why that exists also, what you just pointed out in sports, and by the way, I love sports too. So, of course. I, you know, I, I, this is not my personal attack on sports. I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan and I, I get the value of competition. The challenge is that when these ideas get deep rooted into young people without the other idea, that's the problem, right? It's all about both these ideas can coexist. Collaboration and competition can coexist but if one's taught without the other, it can be very damaging. And that's the world we live in today where only one is being rewarded and therefore only one is being repeated. Like the ones that we see being rewarded are competition and winning and losers. And so that's why we all chase the one that's being rewarded. Examples of where I see the opposite is few and far between actually. And I'd say that the only places you maybe see it is at a music concert when everyone's crying, when someone's singing, or you might see it at a group meditation if you've ever been to one of those, and people from all different backgrounds and walks of life that are meditating or singing or doing something together. Maybe you see it in activism where there's a bit of camaraderie, but even though there is a certain side to that as well, but you see in activism, I think they're few and far between. And I think if we could find, maybe we need to co-create something with it because this, this, you're onto something, but it's almost like something needs to be created where people can come to feel that winning together is better than winning alone. And, and I think that's what people actually realize the most in their personal relationships, whether you're married or you're, you're dating someone or in your family you know, in a family, when someone wins and someone else loses, the whole family loses. There's so much time and energy and loss in that situation. Whereas if both people realize or, or a group of family realize that we can win together. So I feel we need to create more places where people think winning together is the thing that should be rewarded. Uh, and that comes from everything from, I, th I think sometimes you see it when people are gracious in their speeches, when they win awards or when people give to charity. I think I'm noticing a lot more where people in charities are now partnering up with charities. So rather than organizations creating their own thing to solve the same issue, because that's the, that's the other crazy thing. Even in doing good, there's competition. And it's like, you're trying to solve the same issue. Why Wait for a vaccine or, you yeah. know. Why are we competing, trying to do good? Maybe if we put all our resources together, then we might get there sooner. And so I'm with you. I, I, don't, I, I struggle to name ideas and examples. And those are the first ones that came to mind. Well, I think it's just that the ego gratification feels so good in the moment. And so and it feels very strong and very immediate and sometimes the other aspect, the more universal aspect, it's more subtle, you know, and it, it doesn't feel like a burst of serotonin. I mean, it's actually really interesting how physiological the ego can impact you. It's like something good happens to you and your heart is racing and you have a burst of joy and something bad happens to you and you collapse and you have trouble breathing. And I noticed that if we're coming from a more soul-based place, like the body is left out of it in, yeah. in a good way, you know? For so many of us, we've just been so trained for that instant chemical release. That's what we go to reward and repeat. And the problem with that is the pleasure center gets lower and lower every time, which means we have to do so much more to activate it every time. So you have to act with more ego to feel the same level of pleasure. And I think this comes so down to just getting to a point where we realize that no one feels good after exercising their ego. After it, maybe it's the morning after, or maybe it's a week later, or sometimes it's a end of your lifetime where you regret how you acted in ego. But again, it comes back to examples. It comes back to seeing people who choose humility. And we don't see that. Yeah. We don't see that. You know, it comes back to seeing examples where people choose and I think you see it in personal interactions, if you're really closely observing, like I'll see, I'll see amazing clients picking up other people's bags for them and things like that. Or I'll see people going out of their way to make sure someone has an amazing experience. But these are things you miss. No, one, no one's putting a picture of that in the front of a magazine or that's not the story you're reading about. And so I feel we need to read more about those things, reinforce those beliefs so that we can repeat them. One thing I wanted to, I was really curious about was, so I've, I've been doing TM meditation for a long time. 
And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's, it's a practice that you learn with a teacher and they give you a mantra and you sit quietly and you don't, you're not judging your thoughts. You're not expected, but it's a very sort of, you kind of bring the mantra gently in and out and you sit for 20 minutes in the morning and then in the evening, if you can find time, which I can never seem to find the time. And through COVID, I've really recommitted to the practice, which has been amazing. And I was so interested in to read in your book about the sort of listenings that you say to yourself while you're meditating. And so I've been trying that. I've been trying it. And it's a completely different experience, which I didn't necessarily expect. And I was wondering if, A, you could tell the audience a bit about how you do it and what those four words are that you say, and do they ever change depending on where you are in time and space? So I also practice mantra meditation. So I, I, so there are three types of meditation in the world. One's breath work, which is ideally for the body. You have visualization, which really heals the mind. And then there's mantra, which is truly for the soul and complete synergy. So TM and mantra meditation have the most profound effect on brain scans and our synchronicity. And most of the study that's been done around meditation uh, will lead into mantra at some point. So first of all, I encourage you to carry on. I'm so glad that you've recommitted to your practice. It's, it's beautiful to hear that. And that's the basis of my practice. So I've been doing now, and, and it's not a time competition, so I'm not sharing this to, to compete. I'm sharing this on the basis of just how much mantra has been so powerful in my life. I started meditating with mantra when I was 18 years old. So it's been 15 years now I've been doing it. And I had to commit to a minimum of one and a half hours when I became a monk. And so that's the practice that I still do today. And I see so much of a benefit from it that I haven't left it. All in one go or do you break it up? It depends on the day. So the ideal is for me to do it all in one go, which I can do sometimes. So I was jet lagged the other day and I was awake from 3 to 5 a.m. So I did it at that time. But I can split it up in my day. Sometimes it's 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the evening. And the reason why mantra is so powerful is that it really blocks out all the other distractions and noise and you can really focus in. But the four words that Gwyneth is referring to are calm, balance, ease, stillness, and fifth on peace. So these are five words that I believe when we hear them and you say them, but for most of us, these are words that allow us to access a internal space that we're all yearning for. So when you hear the word calm, I think that's something that the majority of us gravitate towards. I don't think there's anyone who wakes up and goes, I don't want calm today. So it's, it has that universal appeal. Stillness as well. I think it's something we yearn for. We're living in such a fast paced world. And even where I am right now, the first thing everyone, when we all flew over from LA, the first thing everyone said was just, ah, oh, like I just, everything's so slow here and still here. Peace is something I think we yearn for in our relationships. I don't think anyone wakes up wanting conflict. And then balance and ease are different. Balance is a hard word to understand. It can have so many different meanings. But the reason why those base words are so powerful to allow yourself on your breathing is that you are putting a very clear intention in your breath. And why this is so powerful is because every single emotion in our lives is connected to our breath. So as Gwyneth was saying earlier, like when you're excited or elated, your breath changes. When you're sad and you're depressed, your breath changes. And so your breath is connected to every emotion in life. So if we learn to navigate our breath, we can learn to navigate any emotion. And those four words, I really believe, interconnected with our breath, can really get us to a space where the mantra can really enter. So I find that as being a almost preliminary exercise for me to really go deeper into my mantra meditation practice. How do monks think about emotions that sweep through us and hijack us? So monks define a difference between feelings and emotions. So there's a difference between feelings and emotions. Feelings are fleeting, transient, and ephemeral. Emotions are more built upon over a certain period of time. So feelings and emotions are different. And sometimes I think we use the words interchangeably, but feelings are transient, ephemeral, and momentary. So we may just, we may say, oh, I really want to feel this way. And that's why we sometimes turn towards 
the wrong things in life or negative things or negative habits because they make us feel something momentarily. But really what we're trying to do is we're trying to change our emotional state. But something that is circumstantial doesn't change something that is existential. So what I mean by that is you can't shift an existential discomfort with a negative emotion you're struggling with, with a circumstantial feeling that's provided through drugs, alcohol, or whatever it may, whatever else it may be from an addictive point of view. And so from monks, first of all, it's, it's separating the two and recognizing that one does not solve the other. The second thing with emotions, so talking about the bigger things, it's realizing that again, what we were speaking about earlier, that going to the root of that emotion and where it grew from is important and feelings are taken less seriously. Feelings are taken with a bit of a pinch of salt because they're probably not going to last long anyway. And so why get wrapped up in the feelings? So one of the birds that have a beautiful analogy about this that uh, monks would often refer to is a bird called a crane. Uh, Monks are vegan or vegetarian, but cranes are not, and they're allowed to eat other fish and stuff like that. So the crane bird is known for diving deep into the river and grabbing the biggest fish, but avoiding the smallest fish. So the crane bird will never go in and try and waste its time on smaller fish. It will only dive in to grab the biggest fish. And it was said the mind should be this way that we should focus on our emotions and transforming our emotional states, but not get wrapped up and distracted by feelings. And so what we often try and do as humans is we try to do three things. We try to distract, avoid, or numb from our feelings. So we all have strategies to distract, avoid, and numb our feelings when really our focus should be on changing our emotional state and understanding our emotions. And emotions are things that you've felt for a long time. Like, for example, you had a fight with your partner, you had a fight with your child, you had a fight with someone, you feel mad at them, but your emotional state with them is absolutely fine. Or it could be the other way around. You feel in the moment someone loves you, but your emotional state for a long time has been, I don't think we really love each other. And that's what you want to focus on, not the feeling. Feelings are misleading. I've never heard it described like that. That's really helpful. I'm glad you asked me that, actually. I wasn't even thinking about that. But now that you brought it up, it's like, it's, yeah, it's really useful to just disconnect the two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because feelings are what get us into trouble as well. It's almost like, I'm just talking about relationships because I think we can all relate to in relationships more, but you've known for a long time, you don't want to be with this person anymore, but then they do something really sweet or or then they act in a way that's really exciting or endearing. And all of a sudden you forget about the emotion because the feeling is so captivating. And we do this often that we remain in toxic relationships, workplaces and environments because we feel good for a moment, even though the emotional state is negative. Okay, this is my last question because I've gone over. So in the beginning, you said you talked about the importance of crossing paths with the monk in your life. It doesn't have to be an actual monk, but somebody who shows you the possibility in terms of your potential or how to access that feeling of freedom in yourself. How can we be that for other people. I love that. The first thing that came to mind when you said that is a beautiful story that the Buddha tells. So the Buddha tells this beautiful story of how there's a person who is trying to go on a journey. And in this journey, they come across a river and they want to get to the other side of the river, but they don't know how to get to the other side. And so They go, okay, I need to build a raft because there's no bridge. There's no way around. I need to get over this river. It's in my journey. It's in my path. So they get the twigs, they get branches, they find some rope and they make this raft and they get on top of the raft. They get a little wooden oar and then they get to the other side. And now they think, wow, this, this raft is amazing. Like this raft helped me get across. We made it across. And they say, well, I can't let go of this raft. I'm going to strap it to my back and I'm going to walk through. Now they strap it to their back and they start walking through. And as the person walks through, they realize they come into a woody forest, which is the next stage of their life. And when they try to walk through the woody forest, they can't get through because the raft just keeps knocking into all the pieces of wood. And they're just trying to like maneuver it through. And all of a sudden the, the person has a choice. Do they continue to stay with the raft 
or do they realize this is time to let the raft go? And the Buddha teaches that this is the journey that everyone comes into in life, that what got them to where they are now may not be the same thing that's going to get them to the next stage. And that's what you were saying, that you were saying that when you realized that you got to 40 and you were just like, no, I just realized that this was useless now and or that wasn't the most meaningful pursuit. And you were brave enough to put the raft down. And that bravery is what we're trying to be if you're trying to be that monk for people, is you're trying to be that bravery and the courage for people to put that raft down, to help them believe that there is a new tool, there is a new skill set, there is a new approach to life that will serve them. Because for them, that's the raft that helped them cross that river. And they're thinking, but if I can't let go of this raft, this raft saved my life. And that's how we feel with the tools, the skills, the strengths we have. We go, no, no, this saved my life. This got me out of being broke. This got me out of my divorce. This got me out of everything. And now you're telling me to let it go? But this identity saved me. And it's giving people the courage. That identity didn't save them. It served them for a period of their life. And that the identity that will save them is far beyond what served them to that point. So that's what it means to be a monk for people, is to give people that belief and courage and bravery to put down that raft and, and say, no, there's, there's another path here. And, and when you live in, you are, when you're doing it yourself, it becomes so much more easier to, to talk about it from realization. That's an incredible answer. This, this is Jay, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jay Shetty. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Think Like a Monk. It's full of wisdom. You can hear more from Jay on his podcast, On Purpose. He had me on as a guest recently, and I hope we get to have many more conversations together. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.